Hey folks, before I start today, I just want to thank everybody who's donated to Murder Etc. in the past few weeks. Your donations helped pay for some costly repairs after a big computer crash that set us back in production for a few weeks. If you'd like to help us tell the rest of Murder Etc., you can donate by credit card by going to paypal.me slash murder etc. That's paypal.me slash murder etc. Or send it via Venmo to murder etc. We've got links to both on our website, murderetcpodcast.com. Now, here's episode 16. Vanessa McKinney's earliest memories are of her babysitters, her older brother and sister, battling over who had to watch the littlest sister in the house. Me and my sister used to, both of them at the time, would want to go somewhere, and my parents would be gone, and they got to decide and flip a coin to see who was going to babysit. By the time she was in fifth grade, Vanessa didn't require as much supervision. And she remembers a February day when her parents weren't home. Neither was her brother. She waited and waited. And then only her parents came back. And I remember my mom crying that day. I remember it very well. Her and the neighbor lived across the street and telling my mom it's going to be all right. And all I, my mom was just saying, they're going to kill my boy. They're going to kill my boy. Before Vanessa married and became Vanessa McKinney, she was Vanessa Wakefield, Charles Wakefield Jr.'s youngest sister. I was confused. I didn't really know what she meant. Um, they later explained it to me, and then it scared me a lot. I just couldn't imagine my brother taken away from me. That day, in February of 1976, Charles Wakefield Jr. learned 12 members of a jury believed he was a killer, that he had killed two men, Rufus Franklin Looper and his son, Greenville County, South Carolina's top man in the new war on drugs, Lieutenant Frank Looper. The judge looked over the bench at Wakefield, a man he was about to condemn. I was standing up at the table. You know, they asked you to, to uh, stand. Do you have anything to say before they sentence you? And I stood up and I told him, you know, that I did. I told him about the witnesses and that he didn't have time and opportunity to get all the witnesses. Wakefield tried to explain. His trial had happened so quickly. Under circumstances, he struggled to comprehend. His attorneys didn't even have time to track down all of his witnesses before the trial started and ended. Wakefield seemed to be going under, and his last words to the court were more of a hopeless gasp, like the last breath a man gets above water before drowning. That's when he announced the sentence. Charles Wakefield, I confine you to the South Carolina Department of Corrections to be held in confinement until April 26, 1976, and there you are to be electrocuted. May God have mercy on your soul. Wakefield could not feel the mercy. He couldn't think anything. He couldn't feel anything. I was numb. I was in a daze. You could have shot me and I, I may not have failed. The closest Wakefield could come to doing anything was hearing the wailing, the anguish behind him. She was hysterical and my daughter was hysterical. I was trying to gather myself. My wife was crying. I knew I could hear my wife crying because she was like <sighs> directly behind me on the right side and she had my daughter in her arms and my, my daughter was crying, you know. And I just heard them crying and crying, crying and crying. They, didn't say, they just was crying. All I could hear they was crying. Wakefield struggled to compute everything happening around him. 
There were people packed from wall to wall. They were staring at a condemned man, convicted of killing a lawman. Police officers everywhere, people standing around. It was it was just full, you know. And I heard and I heard the sports, and I knew and I knew who it was because of uh, the tone of her voice and what she said. She said, "Oh Lord, Mom, they gonna kill him." A year earlier, Wakefield was trying to convince his wife and young daughter he would be better than he had been. He would be there for them. Now, there was no chance he could make good on that promise because the state of South Carolina had permission to kill him. I was stunned, but I think the reason why I heard her voice because it was familiar to me. I keyed in on it and she said, oh Lord, mama, they gonna kill him. And I was hurt, you know, and I was saying, you know, now here I am, I'm gonna die. Wakefield believed it. He knew it was going to happen. He was so sure his death was coming before the end of spring. It was all he could do to stand in front of the judge and ask for some time with his family before he began his journey to the death chamber. I was exhausted. I was tired. You know, I had been through all of that. And most of it I didn't even understand. I didn't know what, was, what they was talking about. And they were saying all these different things. I was scared. I was scared. They had me. They had me trapped. And I knew they was going to kill me. Charles Wakefield was, and is, a man of faith. Wakefield believed when a South Carolina executioner strapped him into the electric chair and flipped the switch, he would go to heaven. South Carolina never flipped that switch. So instead of heaven, the Christian man, the devout follower of God, ended up in hell. I'm Brad Willis. This is Murder, Etc. In the coming weeks, we'll begin digging into exactly how Charles Wakefield ended up in prison, how the police built their case, how Greenville County, the murder capital of South Carolina in 1975, struggled to keep up with all the killing, and how Wakefield stood almost no chance of going free. Before we do, before you hear how it all happened, we want to give you some understanding of where police and prosecutors worked so hard to send Charles Wakefield to spend the remaining years of his life. The Bible says hell is a place of everlasting fire, lakes of burning sulfur, and darkness. In South Carolina, hell looked like a castle on the banks of the Columbia Canal. In 1867, in the charred remains of the Civil War, South Carolina built its first penitentiary. Eventually, the state would call it Central Correctional Institution, or CCI for short. They had a little slogan about CCI. I, I've seen it all behind the wall. And they had t-shirts. You can actually buy the t-shirts. That is Charles Wakefield in 2019, marveling over all the years he spent in hell. If you had the money, you could arrange to have anything you wanted. Gun, knife, liquor, drugs. Drugs wasn't nothing. Drugs was flowing like water. 
If you wanted a gun, you can get a gun. A gun in prison. You can get a gun in prison. You can get a gun. You can get a uh, a woman. It, it, it can be arranged for you to get a woman in prison if you got the money or if you're in a certain position. Whitfield may sound relaxed, but he's not romanticizing CCI. He's telling the truth. I still couldn't believe prisoners could get guns behind bars. But I did some more research on CCI, and sure enough, old newspaper stories reported the same thing. Wakefield wasn't exaggerating at all. If prisoners couldn't get a gun from the outside, they'd make one using broken water pipes. Behind the wall, you could get guns, knives, drugs, and women. But one of the easiest things to get was killed. And that's why Charles Wakefield was there, to get killed. And I remember, you know, when they took me in the door and everything, and, you know, you, you go in the door and you turn right, and it's the visiting area, or you can go straight, and you can go straight down, and straight down the steps into the tunnel. And when you get into the tunnel, the tunnel's like the main court, where everybody travels. You got to travel here to get to everywhere. For his first day on death row, guards put Wakefield in cell 22. It was less a place to live than a waiting room for the day he would die. Alone for the first time in prison, he stood there, with the judge's words still hot in his ears. Nobody explained to Wakefield his death sentence would get an automatic appeal, so he felt sure he had less than two months to live. I was so uncertain what was going to happen to my life then. They had me. They had convicted me of, of, of killing two people. I had a death sentence. I knew I was going to die. He told me I was going to die. Wakefield looked at all the hell around him. Giant roaches, filth, darkness, and anguish. A nightmare he wouldn't just see in his sleep, but every minute he was awake. He couldn't stop the horror inside the prison walls. So he looked outside, through his cell's tiny window. That's when he first saw, among all the gray and gloom of the prison walls, something that looked different from everything else. That little red brick building. The red building just didn't fit. And you know, I'm saying, you know, what is that red building? You, you couldn't look so far to the left or so far to the right, so you pretty much look straight ahead and you look out the window and look at the red building. In CCI, there were convicts called runarounds, guys who had been inside for a long time, who could move a little more freely and get a man something he needed. Not a gun or a woman, but things that weren't on the contraband list. They would make you a cup of coffee or a little snack or something. They would get you a snack. They would go to the canteen and get these items and they would sell them to you or go get you what you want. When you when they fed you, you know, you need some toilet paper or clean your cell or something, they would bring you what you need to clean your cell. And they would bring you food and your, your refreshments and then information. Information was the most valuable thing. So Wakefield asked a question you've heard him ask before. The terrible answer never changes. I asked him, you know, I said, man, I want to say Red Bill. He said, that's the death house. I got scared. I was scared. There, outside the window, for months and then years, as Wakefield looked for rays of sunshine, a blade of grass, anything that would look like life. He'd see death, his own death, and where it would happen. It was no longer just a nightmare. That building, 
the red brick death house was right in front of his eyes. It was there. That was reality. You know, the way you picture things in your mind, you know, it's not so painful when you think about things in your mind. But when you can actually see and understand. It's sort of hard to comprehend in 2019 because it's been eight years since South Carolina last executed someone. Like many states, South Carolina prisons are struggling to find companies that will sell them drugs for the purpose of killing. It wasn't always so hard because in 1912, the state got an electric chair at CCI and plugged it in. Before that year, the sheriffs of each county were responsible for executing the prisoners sentenced to death in their jurisdiction, usually in a public hanging. In 1912, the state took over executing all condemned prisoners in South Carolina. Since then, the state of South Carolina has executed 282 people. 74 were white, 208 were black. Charles Wakefield had no doubt. He wasn't going to live to see his 23rd birthday. The fear that they're actually gonna kill you. People don't realize how that feel when you sit there and you think about that day in, day out, all night, sitting there praying, trying to understand why and how you got to be here. You know, that fear. Back then, the history of South Carolina's death penalty wasn't as well documented as it is today. If it had been, Wakefield likely would have had less reason to hope for mercy. South Carolina was not very practiced at mercy. Today, and likely forever, South Carolina holds the dubious distinction of being the state that executed the youngest prisoner ever convicted and sentenced to death. In 1944, Clarendon County South Carolina deputies arrested George Stinney Jr., who was black, accusing him of murdering two white girls, one 11 years old, the other seven. Stinney's trial happened just weeks later. The entire thing took two hours. Jury deliberations took 10 minutes. Stinney was dead two months later, electrocuted in the CCI death house. Charles Wakefield would first see 32 years later. Newspaper reports say executioners had a hard time getting the electrodes to fit on Stinney's small body, but they made it work. On June 16, 1944, the state of South Carolina executed George Stinney Jr. at the age of 14. Seventy years after Stinney died in the electric chair, in 2014, when Stinney could have been 84 years old, a South Carolina judge overturned Stenny's conviction, saying, decades too late, he didn't get a fair trial. Wakefield might not have known all that, but he knew he was poor. He knew he was black. Those were the first two strikes against him. As of the 2017 census, nearly 70% of the South Carolina population is white. But more than 70% of all executed prisoners are black. In 1976, the third strike for Wakefield, a jury convicted him of the kind of crime for which no man ever received mercy. I was there for killing the police. And if anybody was going to die, it was going to be me because it was people that actually thought I killed somebody and they wanted to see me dead. If anybody was going to die, it was going to be me. 
Wakefield got lucky. In 1978, the U.S. Supreme Court threw out six of South Carolina's death sentences. The ruling said South Carolina's death penalty sentencing law was unconstitutional. After two years of staring at his death house, Charles Wakefield got the news that the state of South Carolina was not going to put him to death. Instead, a judge told him he had to spend the rest of his life behind the wall. That's coming up right after this break. I have had a crazy busy summer and almost no time at all to think about making my health and wellness a priority. If you're anything like me, you're probably looking for ways to get started, get better sleep, find some energy, or manage your stress. I ended up taking this fun online quiz at TakeCareOf.com. When I was done, CareOf had some immediate recommendations on what would be good for me. It was quick, simple, and offered scientifically backed recommendations for me. All you have to do is answer a few questions about your sleep habits, your weight goals, or whatever it is about you that you'd like to improve. Care of will take care of the rest. For 25% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter the code MURDERETC. Again, if you want 25% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter the code MURDERETC. It's easy to imagine the CCI prison as Hollywood might create it. Something like Shawshank Redemption, a character like Morgan Freeman smuggling in contraband, like a poster of Rita Hayworth or a little hammer. Or another character like Tim Robbins fixing up the library for his fellow prisoners. Something a little bit more palatable and PG-13 than life behind the wall. CCI did share one important thing with Shawshank. In 1971, four men cut into a toilet drain and shimmied through it to a storm sewer and escaped into the Columbia Canal. But for people who know prison movies, CCI was a lot less Shawshank and a lot more Midnight Express, the 1978 film about life in a Turkish prison. Dark, dirty, and deadly. Ironically, the Supreme Court ruling that saved Charles Wakefield Jr. made CCI even more dangerous because while South Carolina scrambled to find a death penalty law that wasn't unconstitutional, prisoners who were locked up for life and felt like killing somebody, sometimes just killed somebody. They were killing, but they would take you back to court, give you 10 years, 15 years, run consecutive with the sentence that you already had. So you basically could kill somebody and end up with basically nothing other than what you had. Wakefield had been, in a way, safer on death row. In fact, the only other even semi-safe place at CCI was something officially known as the security building. But the nickname for it was the shelf. Now, when they put you on the shelf, that means that they can't deal with you any other way or you did something within the, the, the penitentiary that's so bad until they got to isolate you. And when they put you on the shelf, it's the same way they handle you when you're on death row. This is how they handle, handle you when you're on death row. You don't come out that door without being shackled and handcuffed with the, the belly chains and the shackles. When you go to the shower, they'll take you to the shower. And the shower has bars on it. 
and they'll take you to the shower with the belly chains on and the shackles and all that. And then once you get in the shower, they'll take them off. The only place that you didn't go without those belly chains is the recreation yard. Other than the secure places on death row and the shelf, CCI was a 110-year-old, crumbling, rotting, bloody crime scene masquerading as a correctional facility. Of the 282 people executed in South Carolina's history, 232 of them died in the CCI death house, and an untold number more died behind the wall. A prisoner once told a newspaper reporter, if the walls and CCI could talk, they would scream. You had people that acted like and felt like they didn't have nothing to lose. They didn't have nothing to live for. After the Supreme Court overturned Charles Wakefield Jr.'s conviction, he briefly went back to Greenville County, where a judge sentenced him to 225 years in prison. Wakefield had been through the routine before. He knew processing him back to CCI could take a week or more, and as far as he was concerned, the longer, the better. The Department of Corrections had a different idea. Getting a sentence like 225 years, you know, I guess they say, you know what, let's just go on and get him over there where he need to be and let that be it. The Department of Corrections wasted no time. It processed Wakefield in just a couple of days. Wakefield found himself once again in the state pen. They had gangs. Greenville, Charleston was the biggest gangs uh, in the penitentiary because they were two of the largest uh, areas in the state. Before 1978, the biggest threat against Charles Wakefield Jr. was his own state and the electric chair South Carolina was going to use to kill him. Now, Wakefield was in the middle of the general population. CCI was, was the dumping ground for the worst of the worst. The men around him were murderers, rapists, many of them unredeemable including infamous serial killer Pee Wee Gaskins, nicknamed the meanest man in America, who claimed to have killed more than 100 people. Gaskins was so mean, he once smuggled plastic explosives into prison and made a bomb to carry out a contract murder. And he succeeded. While Gaskins was a unique character, the hordes of the regular tough guys were a bigger daily threat. You know, got a beef, about turf, got a beef about drugs. It was always about money. Everything, even in the penitentiary, is about money. It's about money, control of areas in the penitentiary, influence, drugs, alcohol. Wakefield went back to CCI. After 25 years of living under the rules set by his government and his God, he was now living under the unwritten and ruthless rules set by the people who really ran the prison the inmates behind the wall. I was working as a dorm keeper, cleaning up, sweeping the floor, you know, cleaning up the bathrooms, all that stuff. I had been, been in population a couple of days, and a guy came in. I was sweeping the trash up on the floor. I had a great big old pile of trash, and he took and he kicked the trash all over the 
place. And I'm looking at him like, man, are you really crazy? Wakefield wasn't sure how to handle it. He'd only been part of the general population for a few days, but he knew the one thing he had to do. He had to do the thing the trash-kicking man had come to do. And before Wakefield knew what was happening, he was in the middle of a prison fight. You had to fight for your life, or you could possibly die. Not far away, another man watched, a guy from Greenville. His sister was best friends with one of Charles Wakefield Jr.'s sisters. That man knew what to do. He went and got this guy. Man, look here, let me tell you something. The guy looked like a monster. He was huge. His name was uh, Birdman, and he was from Charleston. Birdman was from Charleston, and he was somebody. Wakefield was from Greenville, and he was nobody. What they do, they have certain guys that have certain status, and they have the regulars, and then they have people like, they had Birdman, they had another guy named Barracuda, then they had another one named, his, his name was Bush Axe. And these were like the leaders of Charleston. And then you had certain people that was like the leaders of Greenville. Automatically, you knew that if they said something, then all of Charleston, the guys from Charleston would move. You know what I'm saying? As Wakefield scrapped in a pile of trash, Birdman didn't so much fly as stomped to the scene. Standing up there with the guy I had a confrontation with, and this guy came up the stairs, and he was like a gorilla. He was huge. Come to find out, that was the guy's cousin. He came up the stairs, and he, he saw us and everything, and he looked at him. This is what he told him. He said, you know what? You got yourself into this one. You get yourself out. And then he turned around and walked back down the stairs. Wakefield couldn't have been more surprised that he survived that day. He was even more surprised when he learned the trash-kicking instigator had two brothers in the same prison. Wakefield laid in his cell wondering, what would have happened if they had shown up? If it had just escalated a little bit more, we may have been fighting three or four people. It's nights like those Wakefield thought about the hierarchy of prison life, something like the food chain in the wild. You had some people that were sort of weak or frail. Those people, maybe through no fault of their own, became the prey. And then, all up and down the cell block, there was something else. Predators. You had people that preyed on other people. The predators were everywhere. Killers, rapists, sadists, in search of something, someone they could hunt and catch. That kind of violence created a different market in the prison economy. If a prisoner discovered he was vulnerable to predators, he could buy his safety. Protection, you had people that ran protection. That if you had an individual that was sort of not a strong person and able to stand on their own, you could actually buy protection. They had people that, that's what they did. Prisons are structured, in part, to restrict the decisions the inmates can make. But after the Supreme Court overturned the deadly decision on Wakefield, he found himself with new life and death decisions that no judge or jury could make for him. He could be one of the predators. He was big enough for it. But no matter what police said about him, Wakefield says he couldn't stomach the thought of preying on anyone. But if not that, then what? 
He couldn't let himself be prey, but he also didn't like the idea of hiring what was essentially a prison bodyguard. As he saw it, he didn't have a lot of choices. He could join up with one of the big gangs, maybe work his way up to the top tier of the Greenville crew and go to war with Charleston when circumstances required. Or he could do what he had done his entire life, walk his own path with no one beside him and nothing to protect him but his faith. If he made that decision, it was one he'd have to stick to for decades to come. That is just what he did. When I was behind the wall, I was a man to walk alone. Wakefield realized his walk alone behind the wall would require staying completely under the radar, essentially hiding. But after learning that he wasn't going to be put to death, Wakefield set out to better himself, earn degrees, study the Bible. He wanted to be the man he had hoped to be on the outside. If he was going to make that happen, he couldn't go into hiding. So he worked out another plan. I had codes and, and rules. Don't mess with nobody's money. Don't mess with nobody's dope. Don't mess with nobody's boy. Don't infringe on nobody's territory. To people living with the freedom of going back home to their own place every night, people like you and me, Wakefield's rules might seem overly simple. But when you think about them in the context of living at CCI, it's a lot different. The prison was overcrowded. Bunks stacked on top of bunks. Prisoners living in cells only five feet wide and eight feet high. Bugs crawling on them at night. One cell block was so utterly miserable and dangerous. Prisoners had to volunteer to live in it because it violated just about every building and fire code on the books. And everywhere Wakefield turned, there was someone with a knife or something worse. Every move that you made had to be calculated because you had people that wanted to kill somebody. You had people that got killed for no apparent reason other than they just happened to run across that person that day and they decided to kill you. By this point, you might think Wakefield was just exaggerating how hellish CCI was. You might think otherwise once you hear that CCI averaged a stabbing every 10 days. And everyone who survived CCI, who got out or moved on to another prison, every single one of them knew nowhere at CCI was more dangerous, deadly, and terrifying as the tunnel. If a prisoner ever wanted to leave his cell block and go anywhere else, to the doctor, to exercise, to eat, he had to brave the tunnel. The tunnel is the tunnel that connects the, the dorms and the, the institution. You got to go up the tunnel by the living areas, the hospital, the rec yard door, the uh, door you go out to the small yard where they had the canteen and all that, and the door to the cafeteria. The tunnel was a quarter mile long gauntlet of blood, gore, and terror. A lot of people died there. And I've seen a few of them die. You was walking in the blood. Wakefield can still see it, smell it, and fear it today. The worst of the memories, the ones with a twisted sense of irony, happened after someone found themselves on the wrong end of a homemade knife. They'd look down at their own blood and trying to save themselves, head down the tunnel to the infirmary 
And when they got there, they couldn't walk right in. They had bars, and then they had the door. And then the way that you get in, you got to knock, boom, 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 boom. And most people, when they got stabbed or whatever, they would have to go to that door and knock and get them to open the door. Wakefield remembered those injured prisoners waiting and waiting for the prison doctors on the other side of the door to let them in. They just took their time opening the door. And a lot of people would stand in front of that door and bleed right in front of that door. Or wherever they were stabbed at, they would, that trail of blood would be from there to the infirmary door. And you would walk in that blood until they got it up. Blood on the prison floor, blood on the screaming men, blood on his shoes. Charles Wakefield created another rule for himself. He would walk alone, but he would walk fast. Anytime that I was in the tunnel, I was on, on the wall, one wall or the other one, and I went directly where I was trying to go. I would never stop, talk to nobody, hesitate. I never would linger, hang on, no. Wakefield knew he was strong enough to walk alone, even if he had to walk through blood. But as time passed and he lived through another day, another month, another year behind the wall, he grew weary. He grew the kind of weary that changes a man. He grew the kind of weary a man at war might become. The kind of weary that can take a man to a different place in his mind and spirit and lead him to make a promise he will have to keep for the rest of his life. If the days in prison seem like they'll never end, the nights can sometimes seem even longer. Wakefield spent some of those trying to find a new path. I remember this one particular night. I never will forget that night. Wakefield thought back to his grandfather, a man whose name was on a cornerstone of the Antioch Baptist Church on Pack Street, a founding deacon who not only kept his church together, but his family too. That man, Wakefield remembers, was strong. You always have to have somebody, you know, that exudes strength. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, verbal or physical or anything. It's just a presence. Their presence was so powerful. Wakefield had grown up in the church, but he knew he wasn't as far down the path to his God as he would hope to be. In prison, he remembered his family and the people who surrounded his grandfather, Benjamin. The thing about the, the Wakefield family, it was a family, you know, you have people that are religious people, but you have people that are uh, saved people and spiritual people. That side of my family, those were very spiritual people. Wakefield's spirit was at war with itself. One part clinging to the light he remembered. The darkness slowly swallowing the other. For many years, when he looked out the window, he only saw the place where he was supposed to die. That night he couldn't sleep. He looked out the window again, and this time saw light. My sail faced this way, faced to the east, and the moon would come up. You can look through the bars and you can see the moon come up. And it was about three o'clock, and I never will forget it. That night, Charles Wakefield got up from his bed and walked down from his second-tier cell. He sat on the stairs inside a prison that had stood on the banks of the Columbia Canal since the end of the Civil War. Wakefield looked down that quarter-mile tunnel 
the one he'd hurried down so many times before, his shoulder to the wall, his eyes on the light at the end. He could only think of all the blood, fear, and death. And so, he prayed. And I looked down that tunnel, and I was talking to God, and I said, Lord, I'm tired of seeing these people get killed. Can you get me out of this one? Can you get me out of this one? It's the kind of prayer any man might make when stuck in hell. Having to see men die for no good reason, trapped as part of a captive audience, forced to watch the horror over and over again. When he was in bed, Wakefield could see the moon, a light, if not at the end of the tunnel, still a light. And he knew he owed his God more than a request for relief. His heart and soul were restless. And so, Wakefield got no rest. I was laying there, and I couldn't sleep. Wakefield made many promises in prayer. He promised he'd never stop trying to prove his innocence. He promised he wouldn't stop until God told him to stop. And on that night, at 3 a.m., with the moon outside his window, Wakefield made another promise. And I was praying. I said, Lord, if you get me away from this place, I will never come back again. That was Wakefield's promise. I will never come back again. Wakefield eventually made it out of CCI and spent more than two decades in other prisons around the state. The Department of Corrections closed CCI in 1994 after the feds said it was overcrowded. The state opened up the building for tourists. 3,300 people showed up on the first day. Over the course of the next 25 years, the city of Columbia struggled to do something with the rotting property. Today, if you look up on the banks of the Columbia Canal, you'll find luxury loft apartments where people live comfortable lives on the same soil where more than 80,000 prisoners lived in hell. And Wakefield has spent the rest of his life trying to keep the promises he made in moments of prayer. The night I sat at his house as he made soup for himself and showed me the art he painted in his home studio. We talked for a while, and he told me about those promises. I made a promise. I made a promise to God. And then he showed me some pictures of his family, the people who died while he was locked up. And that is when he revealed he did go back to CCI, in a way. When Wakefield got out of prison in 2010, he went to where CCI once stood, its remnants scattered along the canal banks. He took a souvenir home with him, one that reminds him of all those promises, to keep fighting to clear his name, and to never again be somewhere the fear of death is part of daily life. To never again be captive in hell. On the second shelf of a bookcase in his living room, just above a book titled The Book of Happiness, is a brick. It's old. It has some mortar stuck to its side. And it's red.
Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about what you heard, visit our website, murderetcetrapodcast.com. That's murderetcpodcast.com. And again, thanks to everyone who's been so generous with their patience and donations. Since our last episode, we had a big computer meltdown, and it cost us a bunch of money to fix. So thank you for donating to the show. If you'd like to help out, you can donate using your credit card at paypal.me slash murderetc. Or send it via Venmo to murderetc. Or, even better, join Amateurs Etc., our community of listeners and investigators. They pay a little bit of money for access to some extra material, bonus episodes, and more. You can learn more about how to donate and Amateurs Etc. on our website, murderetcpodcast.com. We've already started work on episode 17. Here's just a little bit. Cash Williams tried to hire somebody to, to shoot him. Is that true? Sylvia? Ain't that something? Thanks for listening this week. Join us again next time on Murder Etc.